Well, as many of you know, uh, we are today coming to week number four of our nine-week series. So we're almost halfway through this nine-week series where we're thinking together about uh, how it is that we can understand or uncover the book of Revelation by understanding eight key prophetic events that are spelled out in the 22 chapters of this book. Over the last two weeks, we've gotten started by considering the first two of these eight events. Let me remind you of what they are. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we talked about an event called the rapture of the church. The rapture of of the church is this event where God, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, literally faster than you could bat an eye, that God will evacuate from the earth every follower of Jesus Christ. That he will take us to heaven in that moment preceding the beginning of what the Bible calls the period of tribulation, which is coming to the world. The second key prophetic event that we discussed last week, in fact, this is what I talked to you about from the Valley of Armageddon last week, And that is, we discussed the rise of a person that the Bible calls the beast. Uh, This is the Antichrist. The Bible calls him the man of sin, the son of perdition, the wicked one. All of these designations describing this one who will rise to world prominence in the last days will step onto the world scene and become one who will lead the world through the chaos into, really, the chaos of the tribulation, but who will ultimately deceive the world into worshiping him. The rapture of the church, where the church goes out, and the appearance of the Antichrist. Now, these two events happen one after the other, or even perhaps almost simultaneously, But these two events, the rapture and the rise of the Antichrist, would mark the beginning of a period of time called the tribulation, a seven-year tribulation that the Bible discusses in great detail. And I want to say to you that no one here today and no one listening to my voice would want to be on the earth during the days of tribulation. In fact, no one who would seriously consider the scriptures and what they have to say about what these days will be like would have any desire to be here. As God removes his spirit from the world, imagine, as God removes his spirit from the world and as God removes his people from the world who are called salt and light in the world, as God takes his spirit and his people from the world, then this devastating reality of what a world absent the influence and the protection of God is like will become shockingly clear. And these are no days that any of us would want to live in. In Revelation chapter 6, don't turn, we're not going to read this today, but in Revelation chapter 6, you read about the breaking of the seals We call these the seal judgments. And I think I've explained this to you a few weeks ago when we were starting this study just in the introductory week that in Revelation chapter 5, John says, I saw this book in the hand of God. It was a scroll, not a book like this, but a rolled up scroll. He said, I saw this scroll in the right hand of God. And in Revelation 5, he describes how that Jesus goes and he takes the book from the hand of God. And he says that it was sealed. It had seven seals holding it closed. And in chapter number six, Jesus begins to break the seals. He's opening the book. He begins to break the seven seals. And with the breaking of each one of those seven seals, a new uh, tragedy, a new tribulation experience unfolds or pours forth on the earth. With the breaking of the first seal, we saw last week the arrival of the Antichrist. He comes forth when that first seal is broken. With the breaking of the second seal, the peace that he brings, the false and temporary peace that he brings to the world will evaporate, and you can read it later. Revelation chapter 6 says that war breaks out literally throughout the world. 
When the third seal is broken, there's a famine that covers the earth, presumably as a result of the wars that have been raging. When the fourth seal is broken, death and disease will sweep across the world so that Revelation 6 says one-fourth of the population of the planet will die, literally in the first months or a couple of years of the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 6 tells us that with the breaking of the fifth seal, that there will be a martyrdom that will happen of those who would dare to follow Christ in those days. And then in chapter number 6, in seal number 6, when it's broken, we learn that creation literally convulses. Literally, that the, the, the earth is, is hemorrhaging, if you will, or convulsing uh, under this withdrawal of God's presence. And these, these judgments that are described in chapter 6 are only the beginnings of God's wrath. Uh, These are simply the naturally occurring calamities that happen when God steps back from the world. Now, you should understand that God created the world and by his grace stepped in and throughout history has been given grace throughout the, the world to all the nations and specific grace calling those of us who trust in him to faith. He has been very engaged and involved in our world, spiritually and, and politically and in every imaginable way in the, in the affairs of men. But during the tribulation, God will remove his hand and step back. And when he does, the, the calamities that will occur are those that are described in Revelation chapter number 6. In fact, Revelation, I believe, would say to us that that God's direct engagement of wrath, more than just his withdrawing himself, but where he actually begins to pour out his wrath. You know, by the way, Jesus talked about the fact that, that those who trust in him are secure, but for those who deny him, the wrath of God is hanging over them. So I would describe it this way, the wrath of God falling down upon the world does not occur until chapter 8, verse 1, with the breaking of the seventh seal and then the seven trumpet judgments that begin to come forth. But before God's wrath even falls, people by the end of chapter 6 are already crying out. Listen to what they say. Look at chapter number 6 at the end of the chapter, verse number 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every slave and every free man, doesn't matter who they are, the, the, the rich and powerful, the influential, along with the, the, those who are the nobodies of the world, the average and the ordinary people, the, the, those who are the paupers along with the princes, all of them under that time of God's judgment will Verse 15 says, hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to withstand it? Now my point in saying all of that is this, that the wrath of God hasn't even come yet. It's coming in chapter number eight. But just with God's withdrawal, the tragedies on the earth are so intense that they begin to cry out, who can stand? And in that moment, there is, it's almost as if God hits the pause button on the tribulation. And what you have when you arrive at chapter number seven of Revelation is a space of grace, where in the midst of chaos and in the midst of that judgment beginning to unfold, God says, Let me tell you about grace that remains available. By the way, can I just say that I understand that we all arrived here today needing grace. Amen? There's nobody here that doesn't need grace. Nobody here. And and, and we have arrived, if we have any self-awareness at all, we have arrived knowing that we are broken in too many ways to even begin to number them. And we know we need God's grace. And when our lives are broken, don't raise your hand, but any broken lives represented here today? When our lives are broken and uncertain, and when our lives are marked by 
tears and with weeping and maybe when our lives are marked by chaos, can I just invite you to know that if you say, my life out there is chaotic and broken and I'm afraid, welcome into a space of grace at Brookstone this morning. Welcome. Breathe in God's grace. Reach out and find his grace available for you. It's exactly what happens in chapter number seven. They're beginning to to sense this judgment now coming. Oh, the day of his wrath is here. Who could could stand against the the wrath of almighty God? And he says, "Let let me now show you, let me give you some grace. And God's grace shows up in the chaos of the tribulation by the appearance of a powerful gospel witness. In fact, more than one powerful gospel witness. Here's what I want you to know. This is, in fact, your prophetic point in your handbook. If you're filling in some blanks this morning, go ahead and do it. The prophetic point that we're learning today is this, is that because God has never been without a witness in the world, and he has never been, because God has never been without a witness in the world, he will raise up an army to proclaim the gospel during the darkest time in history. I love this about him, by the way. He is always interested in grace and mercy. Till the last breath, till the final moment, he is always interested in offering grace and mercy. He will raise up an army to preach the gospel. Let's read about it. I'm in Revelation chapter 7. Let's read beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, and after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, or in other words, in the north and southeast and the west, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying unto them, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed a hundred and forty four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And beginning in verse number five, going down through verse eight, each of those twelve tribes are named, and twelve thousand men. From each of those tribes. But verse number four says 144,000 were sealed. Imagine this moment after six of those seven seals are broken, just before the seventh seal is broken, and now the wrath of God begins to pour. An angel rises up and says, Stop! Hold it! We've got some, we've got some work to do. We're going to send some preachers out into the world. Before you let those judgments fall, Let us seal these 144,000 men. Now hold your finger in chapter 7. Turn to Revelation 11. Look at verse 1 as well. Here's the second of two powerful witnesses that will uh, preach the gospel during the tribulation. I'm in chapter 11 and verse 1. That verse says, And there was given unto me a reed like a rod, a measuring stick. And the, angel, uh, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, the outer court, which is without the temple, leave out, don't measure that. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city, pop quiz, which city is the holy city? Shout it. Yeah, it wasn't a strict question. Y'all sounded a little unsure, but you're right. It's Jerusalem. It's, somebody said Asheville, but it's not Asheville. <laughs> Have you been downtown Asheville on a Friday night? <laughs> he says, uh, uh, the holy city, uh, it is given unto the Gentiles. They shall tread the holy city of Jerusalem underfoot for 42 months. Verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses. Chapter 7, 144,000 witnesses. Chapter 11, two more witnesses, and they shall prophesy for 1,260 days. They have two time designations in these verses, one period, 42 months, another period mentioned, 1,260 days. Those are both equal to three and a half years. They shall prophesy for 1,260 days 
And during those days, they will be clothed in sackcloth. So chapter 7, chapter 11, a space of grace where God says, I'm sending into the world a gospel witness during the days of tribulation. Write it down this way. Let's understand it. John tells us about the tribulation evangelists. These are what I would call tribulation evangelists. These passages, chapter 7 and 11, tell us about these two teams of preachers. Now, admittedly, one team much larger than the second, 144,002, but two teams of evangelists, of preachers, who will declare the gospel during the years of the tribulation. Let's talk about the first ones first. You'll find them in chapter 7, of course. These are the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Who are they? Where do they come from? What's their ministry all about? Let's talk about them for just a minute. First of all, I would say to you that these 144,000 are Jewish believers in Jesus. They're Jewish believers in Jesus. Revelation chapter 7, turn back there from chapter 11. Uh, Beginning in verse number uh, 5, I mentioned that the 12 tribes are named. Verse 5, 6, 7, 8, tribe of Judah, tribe of Reuben, tribe of Gad, tribe of Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, uh, Joseph, Benjamin. 12 of the descendants of of, uh, uh, of the tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, are named. And from each of those 12 families or tribes... 12,000 men are selected who will make up this group of 144,000 Jewish believers in Jesus. Now, the Bible gives us a little bit more information about them in chapter 14. Let me ask you to turn over there quickly. Revelation 14, look at verse number 3. Speaking of these 144,000, it says of them, And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts. And the elders, and no man could learn that song except for the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are redeemed men. Now, by the way, uh, when you come to chapter 14, the, the text leapfrogs, if you will, it fast forwards to the end of the tribulation period. And what you're seeing in chapter 14 are these 144,000 who are sealed at the beginning of the tribulation in chapter 7. In chapter 14, you see them at the end of the tribulation. They've all made it through the seven years of tribulation. They've been proclaiming the gospel. And it says that after, and who knows what sorts of uh, suffering they endure during those tribulations, but they or during that tribulation. But they all make it to the end. And verse number 3 of chapter 14 says, They are singing a song. After seven years of tribulation, they're singing a song that nobody can sing but them. If y'all are listening, I want you to shout amen. Have you learned in your life there are some songs you can't sing till you've been through some things? Amen. Right? There are some things you can't learn unless you walk through some deep valleys and some difficulties and you find the, the, the grace of God sustaining you through those deep valleys and then you can sing and know what you're singing about. I've decided I don't want to hear any song about heaven written by a 20-year-old. They don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) But you let me sing a song about heaven by somebody who's been through some deep waters and they've suffered and they've seen the grace of God carry them through and they still hope in their eternal life in Jesus. Now that's a song I'll sing because they know what they're speaking of. This is the reason some of those old black um, uh, gospel songs that came out of the slave days, those horrible, uh, tragic days in in our history, when, uh, when we enslaved so many Americans, but they used to sing songs like in heaven, all God's children got shoes because that was a big thing if you thought in heaven I'd get to have shoes. I'm saying there's some things you can't sing unless you've been through some things. Well, they've been through some things. In chapter 14, verse number 3, they're singing a song nobody else can sing. Verse four says, these 144,000 are they which were not defiled with women. They are virgins. They are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without uh, fault before the throne of God. Now, all of that to say, these are saved people. These are Jewish men who have become believers in Jesus. The second thing I would say is that it appears apparent to me that they are saved uh, following the rapture, else they would have been called out. 
with the church, but they are saved after the rapture. And chapter number 14, verse 1, tells us that they are sealed with the seal of God. They are protected. Chapter 7, verse 3, tells us the same thing. They are sealed and protected. 144,000 Jewish men witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ during the seven years of tribulation. Now, how powerful would this be? Think about it. Let me me remind you of another uh, Jewish evangelist maybe you've heard of. His name was John. We call him John the Baptist. Would you agree with me that in a period of just a few months, John the Baptist had an incredible ministry, had an incredible impact in his part of the world, right? And the Bible says that all of Judea, all of Jerusalem, all that entire region came out to hear him preach and to and to repent of their sins and prepare for the Messiah. John the Baptist, one man in a few months, had an incredible ministry. And what about the Apostle Paul? I mean, here's a Jewish evangelist who came to faith in Jesus. God used him to write most of the New Testament. And in a period of probably 30 years, one man turned the world upside down for Christ. Now, if God can do a great work with one John in Judea or one Paul over a period of one lifetime, imagine what God can do with 144,000 protected, sealed, spirit-empowered Jewish evangelists fanning out all over the world in that tribulation and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It'd be amazing. Now, Listen, uh, the, the number of countries in the world is a little fluid. You know, it's changing periodically, but that works out to be 144,000, over 700 evangelists per country traveling around the world and preaching the gospel. They will be preaching it during the tribulation, 144,000. Now, by the way, some have, um, some have tried to equate the 144,000 Jewish witnesses uh, to the church, and they said, well, the 144,000, that's symbolic language, and, and it really represents the church. We are the ones uh, who will uh, be proclaiming the gospel in that particular uh, strain of theology. Then we would have to live through the tribulation as well, not be raptured out. Well, I would just say to you, if you read chapter 7, verses 5 through 8, I don't know how you take the listing of 12 tribes of Israel and find the church in that. I'm not from Issachar, Simeon, Naphtali, or any of them. I'm from Candler, North Carolina. I don't fit in that list. This is not the church. These are 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. So they're the first group that will witness to the gospel during the tribulation. Then there's two more. Chapter number 11, verses 1, 2, and 3, tell us about these two Jewish prophets. Jot their their, uh, designation down. Two Jewish prophets uh, who will preach the gospel as well. Look at verse 1. There was given unto me a reed, a measuring stick, like a rod. And the angel stood and said, rise and measure the temple of God. Stop right there, just for a second. Rise, the, the instruction is given, measure the temple of God. Now, what verse 1 tells you unequivocally, if you're listening, say amen. amen. Unequivocally, chapter 11, verse 1 tells you that during the days of the tribulation, not yet, but during those days, there will be a temple, a Jewish temple that will stand in Jerusalem. Now, Some have said, well, in chapter 11, verse number 1, this Jewish temple must not mean a temple in Jerusalem. It must mean the temple in heaven, because there is a temple in heaven. Uh, And it must mean that temple. That might be true if verse number 2 weren't in the passage. Because verse 2 says, don't measure the outer court of the temple, because that outer court has been given unto the pagan nations, the Gentiles, and the pagans will tread the temple and its city underfoot for 42 months. Well, how many know that there are no pagan Gentile hordes marching through heaven, right? So it can't be the temple in heaven. Again, others have tried to say, well, this is the church. This represents the body of Christ. It can't represent the body of Christ. It's been, uh, it's been delivered to us in clear fashion that this is something that is measurable. You cannot measure the body of Christ. It is not a building to be measured. It doesn't have a particular square footage. It is the body of Christ. And besides, the church has been raptured out before this moment. No, it cannot mean the temple in heaven. It can't mean the church. It It can only mean, 
that during the tribulation, there will be an actual, literal temple, Jewish temple in heaven. Let me give you a report. I was just, I said in heaven, I meant in Jerusalem. I was just in Jerusalem. There is no temple there. I was on the Mount of Olives on Friday morning, which gives a clear and panoramic view of the old city. There is no temple there. And yet this verse says that during those days, there will be a temple in Jerusalem. Now we shouldn't be surprised by this because there in history have been, in fact, two beautiful temples that have stood in Jerusalem. The first one built by Solomon, King Solomon, the son of David, Second Chronicles describes that building to us. It was built around 950 BC, and you can see on the screen what it, what it looked like, or an artist's rendering of what that temple in all likelihood looked like. It was built around 950. It stood for almost 400 years and finally was destroyed, as many of you know, by the Babylonians. The book of Daniel describes this. It was destroyed by the Babylonians around 585 B.C. It was ruined. It was removed. It was torn down. And for 70 years, 70 plus years, there was no temple in Jerusalem until a second temple was built. This was the temple built as recorded in the book of Ezra and then enlarged by King Herod just before the time of Jesus. This was a beautiful temple that stood in the Temple Mount. In fact, Jewish legend says that if you never saw the temple of God in Jerusalem, you've never seen a beautiful building. It stood 20 stories tall. Can you imagine? 20 stories tall, made of beautiful limestone. This temple was the temple of God standing there, and, and it was destroyed too. That second temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD by the Romans. We shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said that it would be. Matthew 24, Jesus said, no stone of that temple will stay in place. Every one of them will be torn down. That was fulfilled in AD 70. And so following that, there was no temple there. And then literally nothing stood there for very much for, for um, about 600 years until the year around 690 AD. And, a, and another building was built there, a gold-domed building. That's, that's not a Jewish temple, is it? Not a Jewish temple at all. It's not a Christian church. It's a Muslim shrine. It is the Dome of the Rock, the Mosque of Omar. Uh, Al-Sharif, the Muslims call it. But this is a, an Islamic shrine that has stood in that location of the Jewish temple for the last over 1,300 years. Now, I've just walked you through 3,000 years of architectural history on the Temple Mount, Solomon's Temple, uh, King Herod's Temple, the Dome of the Rock, and now you come to Revelation 11 where the Bible says that one day that dome will be gone and there will be a third Jewish temple that will stand there. This is what the Bible unequivocally tells us. There will be a temple. Now, by the way, we also know, not just because Revelation 11 tells us this, by the way, you know this, that what's the best interpreter of Scripture? Scripture, right? The Bible is the best interpreter of itself. The Bible is the greatest commentary on itself. So we don't only know that there will be a temple because Revelation 11 tells us that. We also know it because Daniel chapter 9 tells us. We won't turn for the sake of time. Daniel 9 verse 27. We read it last week tells us that there's coming a day when the Antichrist will, will arrange a peace treaty with Israel which will allow them to rebuild their temple. And in fact, Daniel 9.27 says that in the middle of the tribulation period, the Antichrist will force the Jews to stop offering sacrifices. Well, they're not offering sacrifices in Jerusalem today. And they will only be able to offer sacrifices again once their temple is rebuilt. And if Daniel 9 says the day is coming when they will have to stop, then they must be allowed to restart to begin again. And they will once that temple is built. Furthermore, Ezekiel describes the temple for us. Ezekiel 40 through 47 tells us about that tribulation temple in great detail. It will be there, Revelation 11 tells us, at that temple, 
that these two prophets, 11, chapter 11 and verse number 3, these two prophets will have their center of ministry. They will, they will proclaim the gospel of Jesus from and around and at that temple in Jerusalem during the days of the tribulation. Now, by the way, um, this past Friday morning, uh, our tour group in the Holy Land spent about an hour at a place called, those of you who have been uh, to Israel with me have been here. It's called the Third Temple Institute. And as I stand before you today telling you that Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel all tell us that there will be a temple in Jerusalem one day, 48 hours ago, I was sitting in the room where they are laying out the architectural plans for that temple and preparing all of the implements, investments, and garments that are needed to exercise worship in that temple. 700 years before Jesus was born, a thousand years before Jesus was born, during the time of Jesus and in the ministry of John, the Bible says the temple is coming. The temple will be built. The temple will stand again in Jerusalem. And I just saw Jewish people preparing to build it. And in this temple that will stand, these two prophets will preach. A couple of things Revelation 11 tells us about these two prophets. One is, verse 3 says, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. I will give power unto my two witnesses. It tells us that they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it tells us that their ministry will be divinely determined. In other words, God's seal is upon them. He will protect them as he does the 144,000 until their ministry is complete. I love that, by the way, that God is in control of the days of our lives. Don't you know that? The days of our lives. I think there was a show about that, maybe. Does that still come on? Y'all don't watch it, though, do you? If you love Jesus. But anyway, God is in control in the days of our lives, the soap opera notwithstanding. Listen to what Revelation 11 says in verse number 7. Well, actually, verse number six, the, uh, these two witnesses have power to shut up heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they have finished their testimony, in other words, when their job is done, then the beast that shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, this is the Antichrist, shall make war against them and shall overcome them and shall kill them. These two prophets shall be killed by the beast by the, the Antichrist, but not until God's finished with them. I have a friend who loves to say, we are indestructible until God is finished with us on this earth. It really is true. Verse number eight, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, uh, where also our Lord was crucified. This is in Jerusalem. It, it is the city of Jerusalem. During that day, it will have become so evil, it will be like Sodom of Gomorrah and Egypt. They of the people and kindreds and tongues of the nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and they shall not allow their dead bodies to be put in the graves. Now, prior to the advent of modern technology and satellite television and instant live coverage, real time around the world at any moment, how could this have been fulfilled? But we're living in the day when all people around the world at the same time could watch these two prophets' dead bodies lying in the streets. And they will not allow them to be buried. Three and a half days they'll lie there. Verse number 10. Look at this. You don't even believe this. Verse 10. They that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts to one another because the two prophets who tormented them have died. Now, the torment came in their preaching. The to <laughs> Some of you look tormented when I'm preaching sometimes. The torment came in their preaching. They were preaching the truth. The truth troubled them, troubled the earth. It tormented them. And the world is so glad that these preachers have been shut up. The world is so happy that they've been killed. They're having a veritable Christmas, sending gifts to one another, celebrating the death of these two prophets. Verse number 11, God's going to rain on their parade. After three and a half days, the spirit of life from God will enter into them. They will stand upon their feet, and great fear fell upon all of them which saw them. They heard a voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. 
Now, the Bible says that after they've been killed and they're lying in the streets dead for three and a half days, God will raise them up and then take them to heaven. This will be seen by all the world. And one of the things that I mentioned to you last Sunday from the Valley of Armageddon is that the Antichrist will imitate, he will seek to demonstrate a power equal to or greater than that of God. And immediately following this resurrection of these two prophets and their ascension, there will be an assassination. The Antichrist himself will die, Daniel says, and he will be raised. Revelation says the same thing, that he will be raised himself. And so they will then, uh, these two prophets will go to heaven. Now, all of that to say, hey, if y'all are still with me, shout amen. amen. So all that to say that during the days of tribulation period, right from the very beginning, God will raise up two groups to preach, the 144,000 and the two witnesses. What exactly will they preach? Let's talk for a minute about their tribulation message. What will they proclaim during the tribulation? What will they say about God? Well, very quickly, chapter 11, verse number 3 says that the two prophets will preach clothed in sackcloth. This is the traditional uh, garment of the prophets in the Old Testament when they were preaching the wrath or the judgment of God uh, to demonstrate their grief over the sin of the people and the, and the impending judgment of God. They would preach from the garments of, of weeping, the garments of lamenting, sackcloth, this is indicative of the fact that these two prophets will preach a message of judgment, a message of wrath. Uh, you see this in chapter 11 and verse number 6 as well. These two prophets will have the ability in their preaching and with their power that they will cause it to not rain on the earth during the days of their prophecy, or they will have power over the waters to turn them to blood. Now, by the way, this, this sounds fantastical to us, but this has happened in history, right? Do you remember the prophet Elijah? The prophet Elijah, who um, the Bible says had the, had the ability to speak the word to King Ahab, and for three years it didn't rain or dew in the land of Israel. He stopped the rain. It's God's judgment. And who else does this sound like? Who had the power to turn water into blood? Moses. Moses did this in Egypt. And the, and the waters of the great Nile uh, were turned to blood. So these are prophets who will preach, and both in Elijah's case and in, and in Moses' case, they had the ability to, uh, to affect these things as they talked about and warned of the judgment of God. And then if you go back to chapter number seven, you'll get some sense of the message of the 144,000. Look at verses 13 and 14. Revelation 7, 13. One of the elders answered, saying unto me, uh, who are these which are arrayed in white robes and where have they come from? And I said unto him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are they which have come out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He that sits on his throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Who's he describing? He's describing tribulation saints who are in heaven because they have heard the preaching of the 144,000 during the tribulation. They have then put their faith in Christ, been executed, martyred because of their faith in Jesus, and now they're in heaven. What does it tell us about the preaching of the 144,000? That they are preaching the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ. What will the message of the tribulation be? What will the messengers, the 144,000 and the two witnesses, what will they proclaim during the tribulation? Well, they'll proclaim the same message that any faithful preacher proclaims today or that any faithful gospel witness sharer proclaims today. It is that God is holy and his wrath is well-deserved because of our sin, but yet God is merciful and the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse us from our sin. That's the message. It's the same message we preach today. It will be the message of the tribulation. Here's the focus factor in your handbook. Write it down this way. The gospel never loses its power. If you believe it, say amen. The gospel never loses its power. And so the message won't change during the tribulation. Why would it? It'll still be the same powerful message. The message of hope during the tribulation will be the same as today. Christ's blood is sufficient for our righteousness. 
So what you have is the tribulation unfolding. It will certainly unfold. The rapture of the church will take us out. The rise of the Antichrist will initiate the beginning of seven years of tribulation, but the world will not be without a witness. 144,000 plus two, they will preach the holiness and wrath of God against sin and the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus. So with all of that said, then who will receive the message? Let's talk about this as we close, the tribulation saints. Who are those who will receive the message? And be saved. I just read to you chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This group of people in heaven praising God, having come out of the tribulation. Not the church. Church is already there. Um, These are tribulation saints who are saved after the rapture of the church. But who are they? Who are those that are being saved during the tribulation? Revelation 7 and verse 9 gives us a snapshot of who they are. Look at it. Revelation 9 says, After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits upon the throne and uh, to the Lamb. Now, who are these people who are saved during the tribulation and they are in heaven? Well, they come from every nation, verse 9 says. Every nation, every kindred, every people group, all languages. They must be made up of Jews and Gentiles. People from all over the world. Every every continent, every country, every people group, every language. Hearing the gospel from 144 and from 2. And these Jews and Gentiles are coming to faith during the tribulation period. But that said, even though I'm confident it will be Jews and Gentiles who will be saved during the tribulation, I want to say to you that the primary recipients, now if you're listening, shout amen. amen. Don't miss this. The primary recipients of the gospel message during the tribulation will not be Gentiles, it will be Jews. Now, it doesn't mean that Gentiles will not be saved, they will. In the same way that Jews are saved today, certainly. But there are more Gentiles coming to faith today than there are Jews, by far. Not just because there are fewer Jews in the world, but proportionately. And so more Gentiles come to faith now than Jews. During the tribulation, that equation will shift. And while both can be saved, it will primarily be Jews that are being saved. Now, how do we know this? A couple of reasons, I would say. One is because the preachers are all Jewish. I mean, God raises up his people to carry the gospel to their people. And so the, the preachers during that time are Jewish. Secondly, look at, uh, look at Revelation chapter 14. Notice something that the Bible says about these 144,000 Jewish preachers. Revelation 14, verse 4. These are they which are not defiled with women. They are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes They were redeemed from among men, look at this, being the first fruits unto God and of the Lamb. Now, first fruits means they're the beginning. If you know anything about about the Old Testament, you know that every time it talks about first fruits or the tithe, it says this is the first that comes to God, but it all belongs to God. And Revelation 11 and verse number 4 says that the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are not all of the Jews that come to Christ during the tribulation. They're just the beginning, the first fruits, the tithe, if you will, of the Jews who will come to Christ during the tribulation. Why? Because the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes again in the revelation, at the end of the tribulation, he is coming to rescue the nation of Israel from certain annihilation. We'll talk about that in a week or two, but they will be surrounded, getting ready to be annihilated in a final holocaust by the beast, and they will cry out to God to deliver them as they were doing 2,000 years ago. They will cry out to God to deliver them, and he will come. Their Messiah will come to rescue them. And do you know what will happen? Zechariah 13 says, in that day, God will open up the fountains of salvation to the Jewish people. And it says that they will be saved on that day. In fact, Romans 11 tells us that all Israel, those crying out to him in that day when he comes, they will all be saved. Why do I know that primarily Jews will be saved during the tribulation? Because the 144 are just the beginning. They're the first fruits 
And in fact, I just mentioned Romans eleven twenty five, and we are just really out of time. But but let me let me just read it to you quickly. Listen to listen to Romans eleven, verse number twenty five. Um, Paul writes, "For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, that uh, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened unto Israel." Now it's really important. What he says is, Paul writes in Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11, where he deals with God and his relationship with Jewish people. He says that uh, there's a season where there has been a partial blinding or hardening of the heart of the Jewish people. Uh, He talks about the fact how that even when the Torah, when the law, when Moses is read, there's a veil over their eyes and, and they don't understand what's being said about Christ. Now the veil's removed when they receive Christ. But he tells us in Romans eleven twenty five 25 that that blindness is temporary. It's not forever. It's temporary. He says in verse 25, blindness in part has happened unto Israel until, until something happens. And when this thing happens, then the veil will be lifted and they will begin to understand who Jesus is. Well, what is the thing that will happen which will remove the blindness until the fullness of the Gentiles become in? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, meaning that there will be a final collection calling out of the world of the Gentile church that will complete then the rapture will happen and God will turn his attention back to the Jewish people do you understand it's temporary until the day when the church is complete and by the way James tells us I'm sorry the book of Acts tells us that James speaks to the Sanhedrin and James says to him Simon Peter makes it clear that God at first visits the Gentiles to call out a people to himself. And when those Gentiles are finished being called out, 1125 of Romans, the fullness of the Gentiles is in, then blindness will be removed and God during that tribulation will save Jewish people by the millions. The Bible says that Jews will be saved during that day. Gentiles, of course, as well, but primarily Jews. But let me close by telling you who will not be saved during that time. Now, I, I don't, I'm, in, I'm in Romans 11. I don't know if you're in Revelation 7, 11, or 14. But I've got, I've got, no, I don't. I'm over time, but it's okay. I've got to finish. <laughs> I want you to go to 2 Thessalonians. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to be done in two minutes. 2 Thessalonians, and I want you to listen to what Paul says because this, this may be the most important thing that I've said to you all day. I want you to know who will not be saved during the tribulation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 8. Listen to what Paul writes. And then, this is during the tribulation period, then shall that wicked one, the Antichrist, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all deceivableness and unrighteousness. This is all describing the beast, the Antichrist. He will come with all deceivableness and unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, because they rejected the truth, for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion and they will believe a lie. I want all of you on both campuses to hear this pastor this morning. You hear my heart. If there's anything in you that says, well, I'll just, I'm not sure if all this is true. I'm just gonna wait and see. And preacher, if this begins to unfold, if, if millions of Christians disappear from the earth in one day and, and I see this world ruler come to power, I'll know because I, I heard my pastor talk about it and I, I wasn't ready to give my life to Jesus back then. But, but, but now it must be true. Now I understand. I didn't believe it then, but I believe it now. I'll give my life to Jesus the day after the rapture happens. Pastor, you and your family disappear, and I'll give my heart to Jesus. You hear me? No, you won't. You will not. Because this verse says that if you reject the truth, if you desire unrighteousness, and you reject the love of the truth to embrace 
unrighteousness, then when that day of deception comes, you will buy it hook, line, and sinker. And if you hear the gospel today, you listening to me? If you hear the gospel today and Jesus comes in the rapture tonight and you're left, you have sealed your fate to hell forever. This is what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says. Wait a minute, won't there be 144,000 preachers and two witnesses? I'll see it. I'll remember what you said. He says, you will not believe it. You will believe a lie. Today is the day of salvation. God's not your step and fetch it. You hear me. God's not your spare tire that you say, well, if it's all true, I'll just live how I want to. I'll reject him now. I'm not interested in having him as my Lord now. I'm doing what I want to do. But you believe me, preacher, if it comes to pass, yeah, I'll believe it then and I'll do it. He's not your spare tire. You don't reject him and ignore him until you find yourself surely caught up in his judgment. And then go, oh, oh, I'll take it. If the gospel comes to you today, the Spirit of God opens your heart, you believe it today, and you receive it. If Christ comes in the rapture, it will be too late for you. You say, who are those that are being saved then? Those who have not heard, those who have not rejected. They will then be given that opportunity. There's two kinds of people in this room today. There's two kinds of people at Merriman Avenue. There's two kinds of people watching online. And here it is. There's some who need to be saved. You are not headed to heaven right now. You've never trusted in Christ. And you need to ask Jesus to be your savior. And there's a second kind of person here. And there's more of us in the second group than the first. That is those of us who already know Jesus as our savior. And yet we live around, we work with, we go to school with, we interact every single day of our lives with people who will be left behind to endure the tribulation and in all likelihood be lost forever. And we never, ever say a word. And I would suggest to you that if this Bible is true, we are compelled to tell them. Both groups need to respond in humility and repentance before God today. Write this down and then we're going to pray. It is your next step. I hope you'll take it. It is that if God will raise up an army of witnesses during the tribulation, and he will, then I should be his witness today when it's easy. If God's going to raise up 144,000 who will suffer untold assaults and attempts on their life and hatred during the tribulation, if God's going to raise up two Two witnesses who will be so hated by this entire world that when they die, they will send gifts back and forth to each other, so glad that they've been killed. If God is going to raise them up in those days, how dare I keep my mouth shut when it is so easy in these days? Let's pray together.